over, above the ground along Bloomingdale. You guys familiar with Bloomingdale Street? Just south of, um, of Armitage. And what they want to do, since it's abandoned railway uh, train tracks, they want to take out the tracks and create a pavement there and use it for a jogging path, a walking path, with park benches along the side and uh, kind of grassy areas so people can go there, run, sit down with a cup of coffee, talk, and hang out. And the desire of the community planners is that they can build community here in Humboldt Park, that relationships can be established and strengthened and people can get together there on, the, on this pathway. They want to call it the Bloomingdale Trail. And as I think about that, I think about relationships. And they certainly are tricky things, aren't they? We try to foster community, foster relationships in different ways. But we're constantly reminded that we are kind of sinful people. We have conflicting personalities. You know, one person acts one way, another person acts another way, and they just butt heads always. We have distrust. We have our own fears and insecurities. And at the end of the day, it just reminds us that we're just sinful people. And we just can't interact in relationships perfectly, which is why we need forgiveness and love and grace and so forth. And if you're like me, there are times in our lives where taking the life of a hermit seems much easier than forgiving, loving, and being gracious. You'd rather just get away to a desert, find a cave, a dark one, so you can't see anyone, and just get by yourself. Well, in the church, obviously, that's, a, that's not a solution we can undertake. You see, the very word church is the word gathering or assembly. That's what it means in Greek. That's what the very word church is. It's part of the essence of who we are. See, God is passionate about relationships. He had an unreconciled relationship, didn't he? And he went through the greatest lengths to reconcile that, namely to send his own son to die on our behalf, that we could be at peace with Almighty God. God is passionate about relationships, and we ought to be as well. So as we started last week a series on the one another commands in Scripture, our desire is that we could be people, a church, that learns to, to function authentically with one another, transparently, acknowledging the fact that we're frail, that we let each other down, but that we can live and practice the one another commands in Scripture. There are at least 20 different times, 20 different commands, I should say, in the New Testament alone where we're told to do something for one another, to forgive one another, to bear with one another, to wash one another's feet. And I call this one anothering. It's a necessary component to who we are. And today, we're going to turn to Colossians chapter 3 and look at a one another command in verse 16. Would you open your Bibles there? In the book of Colossians chapter 3, the, whole, the passage begins with a reminder from the Apostle Paul to his people, these Christians in the city of Colossae, that they are citizens of heaven and not citizens of that city there in Rome, in the Roman Empire. They are citizens of heaven, and because they're citizens of heaven, they need to put away their old ways of living. He says, put away in verses 5 through 11 what is earthly in you. And he lists various different vices that are not consistent with those who are children of God. And in verses 12 through 17, he then tells them, instead of putting, of putting away these things, but put on these things. And he lists all these various virtues. And we come to verse 16, where Paul gives this great one another statement. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts 
to God. The thrust of what he's telling the people in Colossae there is let the word of Christ be so ingrained into your being that it manifests itself in your daily relationships. The way they interact in the body of Christ. And the more you reflect and meditate and let the word of God be richly inside of you, the better you can function as a community. So as I see that, I see this charge for us as Good News Bible Church. That God wants us here at Good News to be people who do some serious word-centered one-anothering. Bible-centered one-anothering. As I look at the passage, you look at there in verse 16, the main command is to let the Word of God, the Word of Christ dwell in you. And there are three implications of that, three ways we, we see that manifest in our lives. By teaching, by admonishing, and then by singing. And that's how I'm going to divide up this sermon. The Word, of God, uh, the, the, the word in uh, the NIV says it well. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So basically the call to us is to let the Word of God be in us in such a way that we can teach one another with conviction, we can admonish or warn one another with a sense of urgency, and that we can sing with one another with gratitude. And all of it is founded on the Word of God dwelling in our hearts. And we call to Word-centered one anothering. Now Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he calls it the sacred writings when he refers to the Old Testament. But here he says the word of Christ. And to his writer, to his readers, what Paul is telling them is to let the words that pertain to Jesus, namely the gospel, the good news of our salvation, be deeply rooted in your being. And that's what I think he has in mind for them specifically. Now as we kind of zoom out and think about where we're at 2,000 years now, Christ has died on the cross risen from the grave, ascended into heaven, the church has been established, the New Testament is, is set, we can see the word of Christ not just in the specific teachings of Jesus or just in the gospel, but in the entire Bible that we have in our hands. Just think about it. The Old Testament, although it's before Jesus came incarnate, tells us about Jesus. It points to Christ every step of the way. Take, for instance, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah in the Jewish community. Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Torah means the law. And what the law does, it shows us God's standard. It lays the standard saying, this is what the ways that God wants us to live. Basically, this is the better way to live. Now the reality about the law, though, is that we can't keep it. And by the very nature that there is a law, shows us to be lawbreakers. When the Bible says, do not steal and we steal a piece of candy, we're a lawbreaker, we're thieves. And, the, Bible, and the, the, the law shows us to be thieves, idolaters, adulterers, covetousness. And all those things are ingrained in us. And the way this points to Jesus is that the only way that can be mended, that relationship that's now severed between God and man, is by a perfect sacrifice, that being Jesus. So the books of the law, the Genesis through Deuteronomy, point to Christ. And we had called that part of the Old Testament the word of Christ. The same can be done with the book of Joshua. See, Joshua came as a successor of Moses. And Joshua's job was to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and to conquer the existing nations. And Joshua would lead the people and they would do battle and there would be peace in the land for times and for seasons. But ultimately what it showed was that there is not 
ultimately rest in this life. All rest, all peace is temporary. And the greater bondage is not an, an army that's going around these nations, but it's our bondage to sin. And Jesus broke that bond, bore our sin on the cross to give us new life. Even the book of Joshua points to Jesus. And we can do this with Judges and Ruth and 1st, 2nd Samuel and on and on. And all the Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament explains Jesus as He is revealed to us. So the Word of God can be said to be the Word of Christ. And Paul tells us, let it dwell in us richly. To let it dwell in you. In you as individuals. And among us as a body. See, as we let the Word of God be part of our lives, it becomes part of our church. And as a part of our church, then it's a part of our one-anothering. And we can function as God called us to function, as the bride of Christ, as His future wife, pure and, and holy before Him, zealous for authentic community. Now, there are many ways we can let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, but it all begins with picking it up and reading it. The biblical illiteracy in our country is a sad thing because what it does is compromises our ability to function as God created us to function. Biblical illiteracy compromises authentic community. So we need to pick up the Bible and, and read it. Dig into it. Don't lay out excuses. Look at the passages. See how one word relates to the other. How one clause relates to the next. What does it show me about my own heart? How does it point me to the glories of Christ? Those are the questions we ask as we open the Word of God and let it dwell in us and among us richly. One seminary or Bible professor at a, at a Bible college made this sad statement. He says, I have noticed a disturbing trend among my students. And these are students 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And if you're in that category or around there, listen up especially. And if you have children this age, listen up. I have noticed a disturbing trend among my students, many of whom come from devout families and growing churches. They are biblically illiterate and therefore spiritually fragile. In many congregations, worship has become a spectator sport geared to a generation fashioned by the slick tricks of the media. The feel-good experience has replaced the hard discipline of knowing God in spirit and truth. The church's vocation in the world is to be of and for God. And this is a difficult and often costly calling. Christians today must have minds as tough as nails, able to cut through the vapid secularism and materialism of our world with the word of truth. So if you hear what he's saying, failure to have minds tough as nails, failure to be biblically literate, makes us susceptible to the secularism and materialism of the world we live in. And if that's the case, it compromises our ability to function as a body here at Good News and as a church. This is why we're stressing this gateway program that Pastor Ruff and Jose mentioned. It's a nine-month program to get into the Word. It's a theological training. If you want a mind that's tough as nails, Maybe you need to invest some cash towards that and let God use the men and women who are going to be there to sharpen you. We invest our money into so many things in this world, but how often do we invest it into what's eternal and what benefits the body of Christ? Theological training, brothers and sisters, biblical literacy is not optional for us. 
It's essential. It's not trivial. It's vital. And it's not your prerogative. It's your very sustenance. And as a church, if we neglect that, we are in grave danger to falling into the traps of the world that we're in. You know, this, this Bible that we carry, we have to recognize it to be what it is. It's the Word of God. We believe here at Good News that this is inerrant, that it's without error in its original manuscripts. We believe that the Bible does not err. And it's authoritative. It's our authority for our life and our practice, the way we live. And when our opinion becomes our authority, we are on a slippery slope. And I've seen that happen to people where they abandon the fact that the Bible is an authority in their lives. And what I see shortly after is sinfulness entering into their lives and abandoning in many ways the faith that they once held. So if you're one who doesn't want to put the Bible's authority over you, you're on a slippery slope and you need to repent of that. Paul tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and it won't dwell in you unless you get into it. And from here stems the one another commands. He laid a foundation, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And this is how we let the word dwell in us. This is how we practice word-centered one anothering. First he says, teaching and admonishing. I'm going to break this up into two different ones. Teaching one another with all wisdom. Word-centered one anothering looks like teaching one another with all wisdom. And with all conviction. Now we've all been in classes perhaps where we've heard the Bible taught. And there's no conviction behind it. There's no passion behind it. And what that does is, it doesn't cause us to be more authentic, more like Christ. It kind of causes us to be bored. And that's not what Paul has in mind here. Teaching for the sake of one another is to be taught teaching with conviction. What do we teach? We teach the Word, not our opinions. Every Sunday morning we get up here and we preach the Word of God. I don't say what I think. Pastor Ruff doesn't say what he thinks. Jose and others, we don't say what our opinions are. Nathan doesn't say that's what his opinion is. We say this is what the Word of God teaches. And we struggle for hours laboring over this thing so we can preach the Word as accurately as God reveals to us, to all of you. It's our passion to do this. And that's what we want to teach. And that's what you ought to teach in whatever setting you're in. You know, when we, we sit down with Keziah, and sometimes we'll be driving in the car and she'll say, Mommy, Papi, I see the moon. And oftentimes our first question is, Baby girl, who put that there? Who put that there? And she says, God did. Because we're teaching her. She's two. We'll be at the zoo and she'll say, Look at that giraffe. Look at this long neck. And we say, Isn't God creative? Just the other day, she really warmed our hearts. We were praying for a, a family who was going through some great grief. And we're talking about heaven and how, how somebody was there with, in heaven with Jesus right now because they died. And uh, she told us, she said, Mommy, Papi, I want to go with Jesus in heaven by myself. Which is her way of saying, you don't have to come with me. And for us, that just confirmed to us as we labor with her every night in devotions, praying and singing with her, that we're able to instruct her with conviction. And she's learning that. If you're a parent today, do you see your role as a parent that serious to where you have to teach your child with conviction no matter what age they are? Not that you sit down and around a, a table and open your Bibles, although you can do that, but as you go about driving places. 
Or how about opening your home to be a place where word-centered one anothering happens? Get some Bustelo going on the coffee pot. Sit in the sala and sip some coffee and talk about Jesus. Go to a coffee shop or in your mosaic group. Let the word be central to our one anothering so we can function as God called us to function. And that's what Paul's telling them here in Colossae. He's saying, let, just, just teach with conviction one another for the building up of the body. But he also tells them to admonish one another. And I'm going to add with urgency. Not adding to the word, but I think that's what Paul's getting at by using this word admonish. It's the word that we often use for warning somebody. And I think we need to warn with a type of urgency that we live in the last days. You don't know when your last moment will be. And we need to warn each other that we might live in that manner. Paul tells the people of Ephesus in Acts 20, he says, night and day I admonished you. There weren't people living in sin. He just was warning them, there's going to be wolves coming amongst you to teach you false teachings and lead you astray. And we need to learn to admonish one another away from false teaching, away from sin, away from comfortable living. And do it with an urgency as if eternity depended on it. I was seeking God for wisdom as I wanted to talk about admonishing. And I felt an overwhelming need to admonish you regarding this one thing. In our day, there's a teaching in the church that really is influencing other churches that says it is always God's will for you to be healed of your physical illnesses in this life. That's a teaching I've heard a lot lately. And it's wrong. It's unbiblical. And the basis for that, they say, is Isaiah 53, which says, by his wounds you've been healed. And it's quoted in 1 Peter. But if we look at Isaiah 53, it says, but he was wounded, referring to the Messiah who we know is Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. It's our sin we've been healed from. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Healed from that iniquity, that transgression that has bound us and separated us from God. That's what Isaiah is talking about. That's what Peter talks about. And no doubt Jesus in his earthly ministry healed people. He did great signs as the fulfillment of his messianic, as his role as the Messiah. But that is not promised to every believer that we are to be healed in this life. Several examples prove that point. Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14, it says this, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash the king of Israel went down to him. Elisha is a man with a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he died of an illness. And what's even more remarkable, as they are leading the way in his grave, verses 29 tell us, that there was laid a dead man on top of his dead body, and that dead man was resurrected, but Elisha remained dead. Because it was not God's will for Elisha to be healed, but it was his will for that man to be. It is not always God's will that we are healed. The thing that, fear, that makes me fear the most is the underlining assumption behind this teaching is that God cannot be glorified in the suffering of His children. That God can't be glorified through suffering. We need to look no further than the cross to see that point is wrong. Jesus suffered immensely and Christ was glorified. He purchased our salvation. So to heap guilt on people and tell them that they're not healed for they lack faith 
is this wrong? And I admonish you as one of your pastors, don't accept that teaching. Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says that he left, he says, I left Trophimus who was ill in Miletus. This is the apostle Paul who healed people with his handkerchief. And he chose not to heal Trophimus because it was not what God told him to do. It was not God's will for Trophimus to be healed. It wasn't that Trophimus lacked faith. He traveled with Paul to preach the gospel on his missionary journeys. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul could have healed him, but it wasn't God's will. And the most compelling for me is Paul in Galatians chapter 4, 13 and 14. Paul himself says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Paul himself was led by God to the city of Galatia, to the land of Galatia, because of an illness. And God used Paul's illness to preach the gospel to these people and to ultimately save them from eternal separation from God. Can God not be glorified in illness? So if someone tells you you lack faith and that's why you're not healed, it's not right. Don't accept that. We at Good News believe God heals people. We believe it 100%. We've seen it in our midst. And there are some of you here today who we believe faithfully that God healed you of your illness. But we also know that that is not always His will. And He can be glorified in suffering in ways that He often is not glorified in our health. So I admonish you as your pastor. Don't accept that. And we need to admonish one another regarding things like these. To be people of the Word, Word-centered, one anothering in our daily relationships. Paul tells them to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Because you can say the truth and say it wrong in a way that pushes people away from the truth. Or you can say the truth in a right way with wisdom and it builds one another up. I have a great story about this. Uh, Erica and I with our family were in Florida just a few weeks ago. And uh, it was late at night. We had put the kids to bed and we went to Starbucks, a 24-hour Starbucks there. And it was about 11.30. And uh, we walked into Starbucks and we saw three men Three, uh, three men. One of them was carrying a Bible. And I told Eric, I said, look, he's carrying a Bible. And she's like, wow, that's great. So I went to sit down and she's like, go talk to him. You know, and I was, was kind of shy. I was like, why am I shy for? So I walked up to the one guy and said, I see you carrying the word. And then Eric was like, it's good to see people who are carrying their swords. And what this did was it created a conversation that lasted for over an hour. Because we found that these three men were men of God. Two of them were 19, one was 20. And they knew the word so well. I mean, we were just floored by their conviction. And they had just gotten back that day earlier from going out to the mall and sharing their faith. They went to a church service that night and were stopping for coffee on the way home. And they said, what we want to do is just get in the word and start talking to each other here at Starbucks. And they admonished us. They instructed us. They taught us because they showed us what it meant to do evangelism in ways that me and Erica were just like, man, praise God. You know, they, they kind of laid some examples for us and how they share the gospel. And I was, I was so encouraged. And then we took the opportunity, seeing that they're young men, godly men, and told them our story of our relationship, how God led us to walk in purity before Him and how to set up boundaries and one anothering together. 
with perfect strangers, yet siblings in Christ. And we left that conversation saying, man, I want to do that more with my, my brothers and sisters at Good News. I pray that we would learn to do word-centered one another. Not just with people we know, but people we don't know very well. And let the word of God be a part of our very lives and our very existence here at Good News. We need to do word-centered one anothering in our teaching, in our admonishing, and also in our singing with gratitude. <clears throat> Paul lists three categories. He says, we need to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, what Paul's not doing is saying these are the only type of musical genres you can use. The uh, Psalms were the Old Testament psalms, the writings, and we do this this day. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. We sing that here. That's singing psalms. Hymns are oftentimes New Testament uh, uh, hymns that were written to elevate Christ. We see them throughout the, uh, throughout the New Testament. Um, there's one in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And this was evidently a... a, a a hymn that they were familiar with in the early church. But he also says, use spiritual songs. And the spiritual songs likely are kind of spontaneous singing. In the world of hip-hop, we call it freestyle. And I'm sure hip-hop's here somewhere. And I don't notice it. What Paul is telling them is, not so much that these are the only musical genres you can use, but the point is, the very one another command, it's that, and that's the sing. It's to sing praises with thankfulness to God. Sing praises to Him in a way that's founded on the Word. And no wonder why Jesus told the woman and uh, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 that His worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And we want the truth of God's Word to be true in our singing together. You know, sometimes here we even change lyrics of songs when we think they're not so much lining up with the Word of God. Or we might add a verse or add some lines to clarify some things. Like we did even today. The, the, the verse that says, You make all things work together for my good. Now this is true. As long as you understand my good to be, not necessarily what you think to be your good. And then our worship team added, All things work together for our good and for your good ultimately. And it concludes with that. Because it's God's good that we're concerned with. So we'll, we'll, we'll use the word to be the grid by which we sing together. We need to be careful not to put too much weight on our own preferences. Uh, preferences aren't bad things, they're good things. We have our own styles and structures. But when we come to worship on a Sunday morning and our preferences become what we desire and when worship doesn't look like what our preferences look like and when we can't then worship, then we need to ask ourselves, for whom are we here? Are we here for our our preferences? Are we here to worship Almighty God? We can't confuse form and function. The function is that Christ might be lifted up. The form might look various ways. But Paul says at the end of the day, let it be that you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs in your hearts with thankfulness to God. Lifting up Christ and praising Him for who He is and what He's done. We have much to be thankful for as a body. We who were once far have been brought near. Jesus died for our sins and He's given us new life. And that's much to praise for. And praise needs to always be on our lips. And if it's not on your lips, and if you don't know Jesus, if today He is not the Lord of your life, 
If today you don't know the forgiveness there is and the, the release from guilt and shame, don't leave today without that. Because Christ offers, He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And let it be even by our last song that you can sing that song with a praise to God for the life He's given you. I was thinking about singing. And singing can minister in ways that sometimes even preaching can't. You know, singing can express feelings of your heart that the thoughts of your mind in ways that speaking cannot. You ever sing a song and it reveals and it expresses something in you that you, just, you, didn't know, you didn't know what to say, you had no way to say it. But you came in on a Sunday, you were burdened, your heart was heavy, but you couldn't speak a word. And then a song came on and it, just, it was like a release, like God was saying, sing, sing my praises. And singing can do that in ways that even preaching can't. Singing can reveal things that maybe we're not aware of. Some songs, for me personally, bring back memories of mine that bring grief and then brings joy to me. Say, wow, God, I didn't thought about that in years or in months. Thank you, God, for that song, for the way I can worship you. I think another unique thing about singing, it allows us for corporate affirmation. Just think about it. How many times do we get to, with one voice, say the same thing and then say the same thing with reference to praise to God? And as we're singing, Jesus, you are my all in all, I just stopped singing and enjoyed listening, hearing all these voices saying the same thing, telling him that you're my strength when I am weak. You're the treasure that I seek. You're my all in all. I said, man, God, thank you. Just hearing all of us saying that. So we don't do that when I preach, but singing allows for that. And Paul tells them, let singing be a vital part of your worship to God. We're called to word-centered one anothering. The Bible needs to be the central thing in our lives. We find it as our authority and not our experience as our authority. So what's the goal of words centered one another? We teach with conviction. We admonish with urgency. We sing with gratitude. But what's the result? What's the goal as we do this with one another and not just by ourselves? We'll go to a few chapters earlier. Colossians 1 verse 28. And we have a very parallel passage to the one I'm preaching this morning. And this is what it says, talking with reference to Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning, and that's the same word for admonishing, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's exactly like our text. But look at the fruit. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So as we are committed to word-centered one anothering, what it does is grows us in our sanctification. We become more like Christ and less like the world. We become a bride purified, looking forward to that day where we have that marriage supper with Jesus in heaven. And that's why one anothering is so crucial in the Bible and for us here at Good News Bible Church. God is calling us to do some serious word-centered one anothering. So my call to you today is let the Word of God dwell richly in your heart as an individual. Let it dwell in you so that it might dwell among us. Take that charge seriously. That's a command. That's an imperative verb in Greek. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Failure to do that is disobedient and we need to see that. 
Because life and death are at, at stake. Eternity is at stake. The, the, the maturity of your brothers and sisters is at stake when we fail to be people of the Word. So let it dwell in you. And then be people who teach with conviction. I mean, just teach the Word at home, at a coffee shop, on the phone, through your prayers. Teach the Word with conviction. Warn one another with a great sense of urgency. Like everything depends on it. Just warn each other with love. Let us sing together with one another, lifting our voices with gratitude, with thankfulness to the God who saved us. Being more centered people is not optional. It's not optional. It's essential. It's not trivial. It's vital. And it's definitely not your prerogative. It's your very sustenance. And it's central to the life of Good News Bible Church. May we be people who are committed to aggressive, Bible-centered one another. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, we settle our hearts right now and we know you spoke to us through your word. God, this word is so powerful. Small wonder why the writer of Hebrews says it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, if we needed to be rebuked today, would you have done that? And if we're resisting your spirit to penetrate our hearts right now, would we not resist, we would not quench him? but allow Him to just move in us. God, we confess our own biblical illiteracy. God, we confess that as negligent. And God, we yearn for You to show Yourself to us through Your Word. To teach us the tools to open Your Word. To just pound on it for answers, for help in our times of need. God, will we be faithful to the command to do some word-centered one another? Oh God, I pray this thing in the name of Jesus. Amen.